Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the 15th chapter. I'm going to read uh, the first two verses, and then we'll work through the rest of the passage this morning. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. As I looked at Acts 15, I had the thought of uh, how do you make a presbytery meeting exciting? Um, Well, usually that involves some controversy. Um, God had had divinely preserved, has divinely preserved for us in the book of Acts, a historical uh, record of how Jesus continued his work after the resurrection and starting in Jerusalem and then expanding his work to the uttermost parts of the earth. He did this through the apostles, he did it through the elders, he did it through the churches, through the congregations. And it's important for us to hear and see and understand this story because it shows us how his mission to the world is being accomplished and how the forces of the world repeatedly fail. Against all odds... Jesus has marched through history to arrive at our doorstep where we are not, uh, where, uh, where we uh, are the very people that he had in mind, all the people through the ages, and he continues to expand his kingdom. Many tyrants have come and gone. But his dominion over land and over sea has never stopped expanding and marching, and it will not stop until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so the story of Acts is just the opening chapters of our own story. At this point in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, there's been several years of church growth both among the Jews who've been converted as well as now Gentiles. And initially, the church developed in Jerusalem, and that church was made up primarily of Jewish believers. And with the conversion of Cornelius, the God-fearer in Caesarea, we saw that the leaders in Jerusalem not only did not object to that, but when they heard all the facts, they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted Gentiles repentance unto life. This is a big change. You know, they, uh, for Jews, they had been very exclusive in, in terms of how things were done, and, and they were the center of attention and the center of gravity, if you will, for the faith. But now they're acknowledging God's doing something bigger. He's expanding this. And next we will see the gospel being preached to the Greeks in Antioch. And we're told that in chapter 11, a great number believe and turn to the Lord. 
So the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas, remember, to check things out in Acts 11. And 11.23 tells us, When he had come and seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all uh, that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. So Barnabas is sent as an envoy. He's Jewish. He goes and he sees for himself what God is doing. Then we saw in the last two sermons, the first missionary journey, wherein Paul and Barnabas responded to the unbelief of the Jews, declaring it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you have rejected it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we will turn to the Gentiles. Then in Acts 14.1 we read, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude of the Jews and the Greeks believed. And finally, Paul and Barnabas report to the church in Antioch after their first missionary journey and say in Acts 14, 27, God, what God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now at this point, there are two large churches, one in Jerusalem made up primarily of Jewish Christians and one in Antioch made up mostly of Gentile Christians. Jerusalem was no longer the only center of worship. Now remember, part of that happened because God sent, allowed a persecution to rise up and Christians got dispersed. And wherever they went, they took the word with them and God used that to spread the word. So even when the world is bringing opposition, inadvertently, they are spreading, that is spreading the gospel itself. And so, at this point, the question now is whether Gentiles should be included, not whether Gentiles should be included, but rather how they were to be incorporated into the believing community. Some of the Jewish Christians were concerned that the Gentiles uh, were being welcomed into fellowship by baptism without circumcision. They were doing an end run. They were bypassing their traditions and their ordinances, their rules. In other words, they were becoming Christians without becoming Jews first. So was the church, the question is, was the church something bigger than Israel? Was it now the international family of God? One commentator stated it this way, chapter 15 is the turning point, the centerpiece, and the watershed of the book. The episode which rounds off and justifies the past developments and makes those to come intrinsic, those to come intrinsically possible. This is a turning point. It's a big moment of what's going to happen here in this chapter. We'll see, for example, that in this chapter, Jerusalem is still the focus, but we'll also see that in Luke's narrative, this is Peter's last appearance in the story. The Apostle Paul will emerge, and we'll see Jerusalem fade somewhat into the background. Think about that in church history. How many churches have come and gone? We've been here 22 years. I moved here 22 years ago yesterday, or came here at the church. 
And I don't know where we'll be in 50 years or 100 years. We may or may not be here. But as I got to thinking about the impact, how many people who've come and gone here, how many people who we've influenced and who have influenced us, who have taught us and we've taught them, and then God took them other places. God's doing this all the time. He's moving his people. He's using things that we wouldn't think that he's using, but he's using them to advance his kingdom. And that goes on year after year. Even when churches have come and gone completely, the influence of those churches continues for generations. And so the, uh, the presbytery, I'm calling it presbytery, is the first meeting. You call it the council. Uh, the, the presbytery or council meeting will be the turning point where we see the church of Jesus Christ break out into an international community that stretches to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus had said would happen. Paul will summarize this change in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says this, starting in verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, uh, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death that enmity, that conflict, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So let's look at our text here. What's the trouble? Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, uh, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, um, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, to command them to keep the law of Moses. Paul would describe these men who came down to Antioch this way in the epistle to the Galatians, in chapter 1, verse 7, There are some who trouble you, and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul saw this as a very very serious threat to the gospel of grace. In fact, he would go on to say in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, 
But even if we, that is the apostles, even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what, uh, what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Frankly, it's let him go to hell. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And so these men will develop into a group or a faction known as the Judaizers or the party of the circumcision. Their contention was uh, was not that Gentiles couldn't be included, but that they, in addition to baptism, must also submit to circumcision and the other Mosaic ordinances. In fact, they were saying that without circumcision, these people couldn't be saved. Faith in Jesus was not enough. Something else had to be added. Now, there has been much debate over whether the epistle to the Galatians was written before or after the Jerusalem Council meeting, but I think that the evidence supports the idea that the Galatian visit that was written about occurred before the Jerusalem Council and that it was probably written just prior to this meeting. That's part of why the controversy comes up, as we'll see here. We're going to take a look in a moment here in a moment just at what happened in Galatia and then uh, come back and see how that plays out in the, in the council. So the epistle to the Galatians was addressed to those churches now that Paul and Barnabas had just established on their first missionary journey. So he's writing back to them. And if the Jerusalem Council's decision had already been reached before the epistle to the Galatians was written, we would have to ask the question, why didn't Paul just point to the decision uh, that was made at the council uh, in, in answer to the Judaizers and their contention about circumcision? Galatians 2, 11 through 21 seems to describe the first section of Acts 15 where the men came down from Judea to Antioch, but before the meeting in Jerusalem where the matter was addressed and resolved. So I want to read Galatians 2, 11 through 21 to give us this context. Now when Peter had come from Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For certain men came from James, uh, he would eat with the Gentiles, excuse me, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not us, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, And not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, in other words, we claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, we ourselves also are found sinners, 
Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now remember, ever since Peter had visited, had had his vision in Joppa about unclean animals and food, he had been eating with Gentiles in Caesarea. And here's what, he, here's what Peter had said. You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one, another, one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. That was what Peter had, had said previously. This is why Paul's going to tell him he's a hypocrite. You said one thing and you're doing something else. And so he continued this practice as he traveled through Cyprus, Asia, and back to Antioch. But when certain men arrived from Jerusalem, Peter only sat with that Jewish, uh, the, those Jewish Christians. And in Galatians 2, 3, 13, again, Paul tells him to his face publicly that he is a hypocrite. Even Barnabas gave in, who we wouldn't have expected, but he caved in to the pressure also. Justification by faith alone was at stake. And thus Paul wrote in Galatians 2.16, We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And if this is true, How could we preach another gospel to the Gentiles? So I think there's something in human nature that makes us want to contribute to our own salvation. Maybe it's a little bit. I just want to help. I want to be a good person. I want me and God, me and Jesus, seeing that God is my co-pilot. That's a popular notion. In fact, again, I think it's a human nature thing. How many people do you know who think that they're right with God because they see themselves as being pretty good people? They think, well, I'll be okay. I know some really bad people, and I'm not that bad, and I do some good things, so I'm probably okay, right? You know what? In case you don't know this, or in case you need to be reminded of it, as Paul is reminding some here in Galatia, You can never, ever be good enough. It's too late. You've already broken the law. You're already a criminal in God's universe. You're already under a sentence of death. You cannot clean your act up enough to be right with God. The core of the gospel, which is what makes it good news, is that Jesus is good enough. And that he stands in your place. John Calvin commented, Christianity would have come to nothing if Paul had yielded this point. Now back to the men from the sect of the Pharisees who came from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
And they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, I'm going to keep the context of what had happened. Here's what Peter said. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Paul had been courageous in confronting Peter publicly, and it apparently produced the desired result because by the time Peter arrived at the Presbytery meeting or the council meeting in Jerusalem, he had come to his theological senses and offered a strong witness to the assembly regarding the grace of the gospel to both the Jews and the Gentiles and their fellowship and Barnabas also. Peter reminds them of his own involvement with Gentiles, including Cornelius, which had probably taken place about ten years earlier. He makes it clear that this was God's choice. Verse 7, God welcomed them into his family when he gave them his spirit. Verse 8, moreover, God made no no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Verse 9, Peter then declared uh, that what they were doing, uh, what they were doing uh, in this case of this challenge at the council was challenging God himself by laying additional burdens on the Gentiles So Peter concludes that the only thing necessary for salvation is the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's all they needed. It's all anyone needs. This is exactly what Paul had said to him in Galatians 2.16. And Paul will elaborate on this later in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, where he says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, Adam, uh, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Luke reports four times in this text, that Peter spoke of us and them, we and they. So Jews and Gentiles. Then in verse 12, Then the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Remember, in these early days, this is the time where you have the signs of the apostles, which are validating their message and their word. In chapter 13 and 14, Luke has already reported the message of these two men and how he simp- now he simply uh, gives us an abbreviated and condensed account of what they had to say. And the focus is on the miracles and wonders, which was, again, a means of uh, validating God's approval of their ministry and message. But then James comes to speak. 
Let's read uh, through verse 21, starting in 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this word, and with, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from all eternity are his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So this... James is one of the brothers of Jesus who came to be known as James the Just because he had a great reputation as a godly and a righteous man. Uh, In his letter, James will write in, in James 3, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I think what we see here in Acts is that we will see this very kind of wisdom demonstrated in James in this assembly. So at this point, he was recognized as the leader of the Jerusalem church. You'll remember when Peter escaped from Herod and he went to those who were assembled at Mary's house After he told his story, he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. It appears that James perhaps was what we might call the presiding minister of this council meeting, this assembly. So after Peter, Paul, and Barnabas had spoken, James stood to speak, calling on the brothers to listen to him. He then summarized what Simon Peter had said Quote, Simon has declared how God at the first, at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Verse 14. The language that he uses here is really significant in that the phrase to take out of them a people for his name is the same language that's used in the Old Testament for Israel. Thus these Gentile believers are also to be considered as much a part of God's people as Israel. He then substantiated his statement by quoting from the prophet Amos. And in this prophecy, God promises first to restore David's fallen tabernacle, which Christians had come to see as a prophecy of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, who was the heir of David. And second, the result of this restoration is that the rest of the world, including Gentiles, would seek the Lord. I'm reminded of what we read about in Acts 17.11 regarding the Christians at Berea. Again, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So James is not just making this up. James is applying what was already taught in the Old Testament about the expansion to the Gentiles. 
So James, who had been claimed by the party of the circumcision as being there in their camp, declares his agreement with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. There was a complete agreement between the apostles, uh, uh, what, between what, between what the apostles had experienced and what the scriptures had said. And then James announces his judgment in the matter. That we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, from blood, and from blood for Moses has, uh, has had throughout the many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Ultimately, the decision was unanimous, and a letter will be sent from the apostles and the elders and the whole church. We'll read that in verse 22. Next week, we'll look at that letter. It is clear that the circumcision group, which was the uh, initiate, that, excuse me, that circumcision itself, which was the initiatory ceremony for becoming a Jew, was not to be required of Gentiles, but a few other requirements were put forward. But why? I want to suggest two possible angles, and it could be that both of these are in view, and I'd love if you have another idea about this. We read in the book of Hebrews regarding the old temple ceremonies of Israel in Hebrews 8.13, that a new covenant has come, and he has made the first, the old covenant, we would say, obsolete. Now what is becoming, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already vanishing away. So in regard to the Old Testament ceremonial laws, uh, the, uh, uh, which were, Paul tells us in Galatians, tutors to lead us to Christ, these will be off the scene after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. There won't be a temple. There won't be a priesthood. There won't be any more animal sacrifices. God is graciously allowing these traditions, including circumcision, a generation to be replaced by a distinctively Christian understanding of the person and work of Christ and the development of the church. Likewise, the Gentiles are coming out of a tradition. Not just the Jews. They had a tradition. But what tradition are the Gentiles coming out of? They had a tradition of pagan worship, which often included temple prostitutes and their own version of blood sacrifices, in this case, though, to idols. And the apostles, the leaders, the council says, you need to leave all that behind and follow Christ. Now, there's some overlap here. So I think what the text is saying, God is shaking things up. He's changing things. And when he calls us to himself, he's calling us to follow Jesus, calling us to a new life, and he's calling us to leave those things behind. Moreover, this is a means, in this case, remember what was happening is you had fellowship meals, and over here were the Jewish Christians, and over there were the Gentile Christians This was a means of satisfying the Jewish Christians who had been taught the law of Moses on every Sabbath for many generations. This seems to be a concession to their consciences and part of what was creating the division in the Jewish-Gentile common meals and maybe the equivalent of racial segregation. Sometimes there's a division between the rich and the poor. 
Jew and Gentile, black and white. It's contrary to the gospel, all of that. So a few conclusions. What can we learn from a presbytery meeting? A growing church faces new challenges. A lot of exciting things we've read about. Thousands converted, baptisms, expanding new church plants, a lot of that going on. But what happens every time someone joins the church, and that would be you or me, there are problems. People are problems. And you get a bunch of people, you got a bunch of problems. And sometimes those problems coalesce. More people, more problems. We all come here with different backgrounds. We all come here with different traditions and cultures. The church is the international house of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We see this in, the te- in this text, how God himself is gracious and is patient with change. Moreover, we see how the church in her sessions, presbyteries and councils, are used by God to address these questions, these problems, to make decisions, to declare them to the church. No doubt there were still some, perhaps many, who disagreed with the Jerusalem Council's decision. But I want to ask, were they free to continue to stir up trouble or to even quietly oppose the leadership You see, submission means we all come under the same mission, even when we disagree. Isn't that what submission? Submission isn't submit if you agree. That doesn't require much. That's easy. For example, as members of this church, we have all publicly vowed to submit ourselves to the government of this church. We don't get to pick and choose the parts we like and reject the parts we don't like. You don't allow your children to do that, do you? We don't get to treat the church like some kind of a smorgasbord. Well, I like potatoes, but I don't like peas and carrots. So I'll just eat the potatoes. The unity of the church is critical. When my son was born, we had become members of a PCA church in Shreveport, largely because of Reformed theology, uh, especially in regard to the doctrine of salvation. We still personally held to a Baptistic view of baptism, but we were members of a Presbyterian church. We met with the elders. We told them of our private views, but we immediately said we understood that as members of the church, we were under the authority of the session, and therefore we wanted our son to be baptized. I respectfully, very respectfully, told them that if they were wrong about this, they would be accountable to God, but that we believed our submission to them was our priority as members of the church. Of course, there are exceptions. If a church is teaching heresy, then you must oppose it or you must leave that church and find one that is faithful to the gospel. The party of the circumcision was free to make their case to the leadership, but once that decision was made, their duty was to joyfully submit and leave it with God. 
The church of God is a remarkable place. May we all pursue her peace. Paul will write later, and I'll close with this from Ephesians 2, 19-22. Now, therefore, you, church members, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the church, for her oversight, wisdom, and protection. We give thanks for all the faithful leaders who have gone before us, navigating troubled waters, guarding the deposit of the gospel, and delivering it to us. May we continue to pursue the peace of the church so that the world will know that we love one another and that we are indeed the disciples of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, I saw racial divisions in the church that were deep and ugly. I was in a church, and I'm thankful to report that this church is not this way now. Uh, and God has brought them and many people a long way in this regard. But I remember, as a, I don't remember how old I was, I was under 10 or so, the first black man who came to our church. Well, we had a, a large sanctuary and a balcony. No one ever sat in the balcony. But he was ushered in and seated in the balcony by himself. And you, you know, it was the, the tension was palpable in the room. I remember people saying things like, he's a troublemaker. Um, those things still linger today, and we should be looking for ways to mend that divide. I saw a fair amount of conflict in church. I have seen a fair amount of conflict in churches, including some in our own denomination, for example, surrounding the COVID situation. I saw some churches split over this. People were and are divided over how the church should respond and what practices are appropriate. Leadership was forced by God to face decisions that they had not ever had to face before. I know that there were and are a variety of opinions represented in our own congregation. And what I want to do is commend you all for loving one another, and for the respect you've shown to the government of this church. The session had its own debates. But as decisions were made, I am truly grateful for the grace that was given so that the peace of the church could be maintained. Thank you. Peace is essential. It must be pursued by all. Romans 14, 19 through 23. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. 
It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine or uh, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. We come to the Lord's table to commune because we are at peace with one another and with God. This is one of the reasons we conclude our worship around this table, because it reminds us that we, despite our differences, are one people in Jesus Christ, and we are at peace in him. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we offer up our united praises at the footstool of your divine majesty, and we thank you that you preserved us during the night and raised us up again to see the light of another morning. And now that we are about to return to our ordinary duties of life, after a day spent in your more immediate worship and service, enable us to go forth with an earnest desire to live under the influence of your grace. May it be a blessing to us and to those around us that we have spent a day in corporate communion with you and your people. As little children, we have all come to your table, Father, and as we have renewed covenant with you, may we serve in this coming week with humility and reliance, laying aside all bitterness, envy, covetousness, and jealousy, knowing that we are supplied by the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus, that we have been completely forgiven and cleansed, and that we start anew. Bless now our time of fellowship and rest and feasting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.